Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Bears tend to scare us when we're outdoors and they're not behind steel bars, particularly grizzly bears. They're big with sharp claws and powerful jaws and seem to be in a bad mood whenever we spot them. We hear about people being mauled to death by bears and even of black bears attacking campers in their sleeping bags. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Are bears really as terrifying as they appear, or is our fear driven by a lack of understanding of their behavior? Derek Stoneroff knows a little bit about bears and the behavior. After all, the wildlife biologist has spent the past 50 years observing coastal brown bears in Alaska in a bid to better understand their social structures and behaviors, and he details his findings in his forthcoming book, Watch the Bear. We'll be back in a minute with Derek to get a better understanding of bears and how we should behave around them. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Derek. It's good to have you. Well, thanks for having me on. So I'm curious, um, how did a kid growing up in Pennsylvania in the 1950s and 1960s wind up in Alaska watching bears? Well, I've always been inter- I grew up on a farm. I've always been interested in animals. And my mother and grandfather came to Alaska in the 30s. And uh, I heard about their trips. And I just sort of combined them talking about it for years and years and years and years to finally coming up here. And I needed, I went to grad, I went to undergraduate school and I needed to write a thesis and I sort of bought everything together and decided to study the behavior of brown bears. And what sort of went on from there from various jobs and various things. Did, did you go to college specifically to be a wildlife biologist? And, and I asked that because you know, when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, and I, I really did, but um, I couldn't pass chemistry. And so I had a, um, a board into a different uh, major, which turned out to be journalism. But, um, you know, I'm curious, you know, how did you find your way into wildlife biology? I went to college just for the sake of going to college, I'm sorry to say. I didn't go for a couple of years after I got out of high school just to sort of change change a few things. But I just was it always interested in science and I've always liked to read, been a great reader. And uh, I just sort of, everything sort of came together and I got interested in ethology or the, uh, on my own, the science of animal behavior. 
some people consider themselves animal behaviorists, other people consider themselves ethologists. And uh, I just kept on reading and saw, really liked what I read and saw what was sort of going on at that time and uh, sort of went on from there. I'd already been to Alaska and I, I'd been working up here before. So uh, just seemed like a really good adventure and a really good thing to write your thesis about and a really good thing to continue to explore. So that's what I did. Well, reading your book, I can understand why. Now, I'm wondering, was I correct in my introduction when I said bears are misunderstood by the human population? I think a lot of people misunderstand bears. I think there's a lot, they, the bears got to uh, have a really bad press in, in, in some areas. And there's some industries that would like to keep them being fearsome beasts so they make worthwhile targets. And they do hurt people sometimes. And uh, they they have a bad rep. And if, if it, I hopefully stress in my book that uh, if they're treated right and uh, if we, we sort of think of them what they really are that you know perhaps you know we can get along with them that way but they're but there's something to be respected and they they are aggressive among themselves and can be aggressive towards people the final part of the book is I, a long time ago it's been close to 20 years ago we i did a project for audubon society and the u.s fish and wildlife service uh, called living in harmony with bears and we wrote a booklet and we had a lot of things in bear safety in, in, in that booklet, but it stressed, you know, learning about bears and then uh, sort of taking the, be the, best, the best defense that you, to get along with bears is actually learning about them and learning what they do. So that's yeah. what I tell in this book. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, in your book, you, you state that the commonly held belief that bears were unpredictable was a myth. Why, why is that? Well, I think it's un unpredictable because we can't understand anything about them. They're only unpredictable to people that haven't really taken the time to sort of learn about bears. The bears are not unpredictable. They they communicate with each other in very predictable way ways. And one part of the book is there that the bears do have ritualistic behavior. In other words, you can tie different behaviors together in a sort of a stream, and bears will bears will do them in a predictable way. But bears are not unpredictable in the slightest little bit you know it's just it's just that we think they're unpredictable because we don't under, understand what's going on i have to stress one thing just to, to anybody that's listening to you i am not a believer in human sacrifice i'm not <laughs> saying that people do not get injured by bears and there's lots of tragedies and lots of well-meaning people out there that have not done anything wrong and still been bitten and uh even killed or mauled. I know some people that this has happened to, but for the most part, these incidences, uh, we can sort of put them to bed and they don't, they don't have to occur, but there are going to be surprises and certain things that, that, that can happen. And there's a, there's some interesting uh, theories out there and, you know, we recognize dialectual differences in behavior in birds, and it's readily recognized that birds in different areas of the same species act differently. Bears go all the way from the north slope of Alaska. Well, they actually went all the way from North Africa, all the way up through Europe, all the way across Russia, and down to Sonora, Mexico. They're very, very, very successful terrestrial carnivore. But uh, if one says that bears in the north slope of Alaska behave the same way that bears do in coastal Alaska, where I go to take people to watch bears. 
I, I don't know where we would start. It may be that there, uh, some of these incidences of uh, aggression by bears have to do with the density that the bears are used to living in. The bears that where I go to watch, we take advantage of them feeding in, in localized uh, areas, very localized areas where the food's abundant. Where the North Slope, the bears are fewer and far between because the food is much more spread out. And there seems to be, people seem to have more aggressive interactions in that area than they do in the coastal areas. So in, in, in it's a documented fact. I think you mentioned that somebody that you talked to at Brigham Young University, Tom Smith, if you add up all this data, more adverse interactions happen between people and bears in areas of low bear density than in areas of high bear density. So the reason for this is I am not 100% sure, but one would guess that in areas of high bear densities, the bears are forced to, in order to get to food and share a food resource, they're, apt, they're more apt to learn to get along with each other. Whereas a bear on the North Slope has less food, food's more spread out, and they're more apt to defend that food source or be aggressive to get towards it. So that's just a theory, but that's... Yeah. So, so they might see uh, humans as competitors for that food source? Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily that, but I think they might be more used to taking it and looking for it. I, I really don't know the answer. That's statistically, it, it, that's the way it looks, but uh, I, don't, I don't know the reason for that. Getting back to how we don't really understand bears, is that because we are imposing our social structures onto bears when we spot them in the wild? I think so. I think so. And people are apt to be aggressive and they don't really want an animal to confront them. You know, it's, it's sort of our place out there. It's not the bears. So, so how do we get around that? Ah, that's maybe we can change our behavior a little bit. I don't think we're going to change the behavior of the bears. And although we have, I mean, the bear, the bears have a bitch bear viewing in Homer and you're talking about the national parks, mostly in Katmai and Lake Clark National Parks, is about three or four years ago, they did a, the University of Alaska did an uh, economic study. And I, I believe it was a 30 to $40 million visit business that was coming out of this town. And, and right now it's far, far, far more than that. Homer's covered with bear viewing companies, boats going out, airplanes, da 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 it goes on and on and on. And Basically, what these people are going to go see is habituated bears, bears that have habituated two people for one uh, way or another. The most famous place, I'm sure you know about it, Brooks Camp and Katmai National Park, which has many, many, many visitors. And the Park Service has done a wonderful, my wife always cautions me because I always say, oh, the Park Service doesn't know what it's doing. My wife said, you know, they're not really protecting the people. They're really protecting the bears. And they've done it. They've got lots of people going in there. And uh, every day, people are paying up the out of Homer right now. A bear trip out of Homer for a, basically five hours on the ground is fifteen hundred bucks. So it's not for poor people. And uh, a lot of these flights are just going to Brooks. They drop people off on the beach. Park Service takes over. They go to the viewing platform. They watch the bears at Brooks Falls. But these bears are becoming more and more habituated and having used to having people around them. And it's the secret of this bear, whole bear viewing thing is the habituation process. The bears habituate to humans the same way they, and I think that I take one step farther, they habituate to humans the same way they habituate to uh, each other. 
So it's nothing new for the bear, but the, in order to get it at the food source, they have to sort of abide by certain rules to get to, get to it. So I'm curious, I know your, your research is based in Alaska. You've been there for 50 years and you know the, the Park Service operations in Alaska. What about in the Rocky Mountain regions? I mean, obviously we've got grizzly bears in, in Grand Teton and Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks. Any idea how the Park Service is communicating to visitors how to behave around grizzly bears? I mean, I know, you know, when you go into the backcountry, you have to sit down and, and watch a video on how to behave around bears and, you know, hang your, your foodstuffs and whatnot. But is there a, a good sound message being delivered to help visitors know how to behave in bear country? You know, well, I'm not really I'm not really familiar with what goes on in the Rocky Mountain West and what, what the Park Service is telling people and, and not telling people. I would assume it's a, it's the right message. That seem, they seem to have the right message pretty, pretty much everywhere. I might disagree with some finer points and stuff like that, but the whole the whole deal, they've had some, you know, really good and they still do. They have some really good people working for them. And uh, I imagine it's the same way message one of the things i'm sure that they stress i i have not seen you know the handouts or attended any of the video deal is keeping the bears out of the food source you do not want bears and food you know don't take it in my book i explain that uh how starting with a how a female bear does not give food to her cubs <laughs> the cubs come and take the food bears don't share that's not part of the whole makeup of bears they're not they're not great at sharing so if you have some food the bear sees as, as it wants something to eat the bear is going to come take it it's not going to wait for you to you know feed it out of your hand or something like that although though there's i also point out in there and i've saw bears in the russian circus uh playing ice hockey so <laughs> <laughs> you could get it you could get a bear to feed out you can get bears to do anything we can get in bears in katmai national park at hallow bay which is the famous coastal place in Katmai National Park. I've seen people feed bears down there and the park service is on them right away. It's a hard place for the park service to police because it's basically hundred miles away, 125 miles away from park headquarters. And it's, they try to do what they can, but people will do stuff. But anyway, I'll just say that I would imagine the park service is giving the proper message. It's keeping food away from bears. You don't want to scare bears. I outlined in the end of the book, you don't want to scare bears. And I have my friend in there, Chris Day, who is the number one bear person, as I'm afraid. She said, you don't want to be rude to a bear. <laughs> she uses the word rude. And maybe that's maybe that's a good term for it. You don't want to be rude to it. You don't want to scare them. I think that all the, the new people, it probably happens in the parks. You have mountain bikes and uh, trail runners and long distance hikers. You have to look ahead of you. You have to, if, if you really want to get along with bears, you have to really be aware that you're in bear country. In Alaska, we say bears can be everywhere. Alaska is bear country. And you can yeah. expect to meet a bear most anywhere. So you want to keep your eyes open and it makes you enjoy your experience a lot more. And uh, that's just what I recommend if you, if you look and keep your food source away. And we we use electric fences. I've used electric fences for 20 years, 25 years. And there, uh, we've never had a bear go through them. A couple of times I've seen bears touch them with their nose and jump back. Mm. We've it been 100% successful. We use bear-proof containers for food. And uh, 
I don't camp in the in the parks per se right there, but if when I am camping in a park, you know, we don't cook and sleep in this in, in the exact same area. And uh there else a lot can be done to alleviate conflict. But as far as surprising, that's you know, it's I, I can't really explain it. It's it's not good to set up like Timothy Treadwell. Timothy Treadwell's who was I can tell your viewers who was tragically killed with his girlfriend in Katmai National Park. And uh, it was, I, maybe it was bound to happen or not, but he was not camped in a good place. And I, I knew Timothy vaguely. We did a movie for Audubon at one point. And uh, my, my friend, Chris Day, who's mentioned in the book quite a bit, said, Timothy did things we know we all could do, but chose not to. And you can approach big bears if that's what you want to do. You can approach mothers and cubs. You can camp in bad spots. You can do all those things. But why? <laughs> this, this is a question. But I, I wish I could tell you more about the Rocky Mountain West. I, I really don't know. I would just assume the Park Service is doing everything that it can do to try not to have adverse interactions between people and bears. Yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to disparage the Park Service. Um, I've I've been going into to Yellowstone for um, geez, 30, 40 years now, and um, always sat through those videos. And, and I think it's it's good information. I was just wondering if there's anything else that they might want to get into. Well, I think um, if, you go, if you go another behaviorist, so it's Barry Gilbert. I don't know if you've ever run into him. He's, yeah. he's he got mauled by a bear in in Yellowstone, and. Yeah. You know, just talking to Barry, he he took over my professor's at Utah State uh, job, and uh, poor Barry. I mean, he was watching the bear, and then he he, he she wasn't quite where he she thought he was going to be, and she had cubs, and that was that was it. So some yeah. things can happen even to very experienced people. We're talking today with Derek Stoneroff. He's a wildlife biologist who has been watching coastal brown bears in Alaska for the last fifty years. He has a new book coming out, Watch the Bear, that helps try and drive home that we have, to a large extent, been misunderstanding bears, and we really need to pay a little bit more attention to bears to to appreciate um, their social structure and and to stay safe and to keep the bears safe. We're going to take a short break, and I'll be back in a minute. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. 
They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. All right, we're back with uh, Derek Stoneroff talking about his new book, Watch the Bear. Derek, you know, early on in your book, you recount an incident when you were heading back to your cabin along, uh, I believe it's Lake Bekharov? Is that Bashiroff. Bashiroff. When you encountered a trio of bears, two females and a male, and while the females just watched you from the distance, the male charged. And in response, you charged him. Why did you do that, and, and how did it turn out? Oh, that's sort of a long story. What we do towards ba- what, what what you do towards a he, number one. It was a sub adult bear, and this has happened. This has happened more than once, and other people have had the same experience. When they're little like that, they're not only trying to learn their place in in, in bear society, they're also don't know really know that much about human beings. So, what we always say, he was trying to make me move, <laughs> and they're just sort of testing you to see what happens if they run towards you. That's what they do towards other bears, mostly of ones of their own size. And that's what I feel they do towards humans. And uh, uh, they're just, they're list a little bit pushy. Sub adults can, can, can be really pushy. Big mature bears don't seem to have that similar, similar behavior. So when that bear ran towards me, I figured the best thing to do was to run towards him. And, uh, to sort of end this behavior because they, after they do it a couple of times, and it's really hard for me to identify bears from year to year to year, but I go to the same place and I I feel pretty confident from some bears, but they they do this once or twice and then they don't do it again. You get spring cubs every once in a while will come and yearling cubs are are great for approaching the group with not paying any attention to their moms and coming over because they're, is it curiosity? I don't even really know what curiosity is. They're exploring mm-hmm. their environment, but the yearling cubs will come over and they'll, if you want, if you want to be a real hero, you could put your hand out or something like that. You could probably get them to touch your hand. I don't believe in having bears touch me. I don't, I don't think that's advantageous to the bear. I think that the less you interact with the bears, the better it is for both of you, better, better for the bear, for their subsequent behavior. Cause if you let a bear touch you or come extremely close undoubtedly it's going to come up to the next person and do the same thing. And there might be some misunderstanding there. So when that bear ran towards me, I I guess I can remember the whole incident that uh, I figured the best thing to do, let's just put an end to it. And so I took a couple of steps towards him and, you know, bears, you get back to be bears being predictable and not predictable and not understanding. They're not the aggressive. They're not the aggressive animal that people think they are. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the bottom, the, the bottom thing on there. They're not, they're not out to get you or do anything like that. They're interested in you. They're the most, what, su- successful terrestrial carnivore there's been. They've made it all the way from Africa to Mexico. And uh, it, it it's the animal's evolutionary advantage to keep exploring their environment. And, hey, you're a new, you're something new. The sub-adults have probably never seen any human beings before. And uh, there you go. <laughs> he wanted to see if he could make what would happen if he ran towards you. And that's it. And little males, even at that age, tend to be uh, more, I hate to use the word aggressive, but uh, more aggressive than the females. 
But some little females, I got one in there with Ken Day, a story in Ken Day, one sneaking up behind him. She actually put his nose on his pack. And Ken, Ken doesn't, I run, take a couple steps towards bears. Ken runs them down. He'll, he'll chase them and they don't, they don't, they don't come back and do it again. He had one at Hello Bay that had been giving people problems down there for like a year, approaching groups and displaying and doing this, that, and everything. And it came up to Ken and <laughs> Ken took a couple steps towards him. The bear turned around and started to run a little bit and Ken ran right after him. And that bear never, never bothered anybody that I know of down there again. So was this a sub adult? Yes. Yeah, it's a sub adult. Oh, okay. He wouldn't, would, wouldn't charge a adult. Uh, big males. I've never, you know, I've had big males do little hop charges towards me, but I've never, never been threatened by a big male. So, uh, you know, they tend to be more reclusive and uh, they're easier to see and you know where they're apt to be a little bit better, but I don't know what'll happen to me this summer. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you know, to, to that point, um, later on in the book, when you were working up at McNeil River, now the McNeil, McNeil River Refuge, you had an interesting encounter with a, a large boar, um, so large that you described him as a, quote, full-grown black Angus steer with an outsized head that you would call Fred, where the bear approached you. What was that all about? They approached you to see what you are. I think I think they're they're they're, they're curious and uh, just to sort of look you over and and I don't I don't as I keep saying in there I don't know what's going on in, in, inside their head. I just know that the bear is approaching me and looking at me. And when it gets to be a certain certain distance away, I uh, that I'm uncomfortable with or I think it's close enough for the bear, I stand up and uh, mention something. The bear is getting a little bit too close or something like that. But th- that bear that came up in Fred, I can't remember the whole incident that well right at the moment. I have to go back to the book. But he wasn't acting in an aggressive manner. Right. It's not like it's not like a bear coming up to you and displaying like an earlier one in there with my wife. I have that first story when my, my wife and I con- had a bear confront us right in the middle of the creek. And that's a whole different a whole different deal than that. Then yeah. uh, Fred, Fred coming up and looking me over and he's a big bear and and, you know, of course, that's it's big. It's a lot bigger than I am, you know. So it's uh, it to, to say that it, it's not an unnerving experience. It is for me still. Some people can, you know, Doug Zeus and used to Bart the Bear or the old Bart the Bear. You know, he'd probably feel a lot more different. He'd say, this is really cool. He'd probably be a lot more calmer than I am because he's <laughs> actually touched up more bears than I have. But Well, I really enjoyed I mean, you said, you know, you just stood up and said close enough. Yeah. And, and Fred's, Fred's like, all right, sounds good. I'm out of here. But they're not, I, I think you get, you're getting back to the point about, you know, bears being predictable and unpredictable. That's, they're, they're, they're just not quite what we think they are. They're very, they can be very timid animals. I mean, if you, if you, if you really want to sit around and watch bears, you have to really say, hey, I'm going to sit around and watch bears. I'm going to be predictable. I'm going to sit and be calm, da, da, da. And uh, then, then they start to do things. Yeah, I, I remember once um, me and a couple of buddies were, were camping down um, the south arm of Yellowstone Lake, and um, we'd come ashore um, to our campsite, and there was kind of a rainstorm, so we pitched our tents, and we were going to sit out the rain, and um, there was a huge meadow, um, I don't know, 300 yards, a quarter mile away, and when we got out of the tents, you know, I could see there was a grizzly bear over in this this meadow and um 
just working over the meadow, you know, digging for grubs or whatever. And um, my one friend was really terrified of bears. And he's like, oh, my gosh, really a bear? But, you know, later that evening, we're, we're you know, starting a fire to, to cook food. And we actually had bratwurst that we we're going to grill over the fire. And um, the, the bear totally ignored us. Never, never was an issue. Wow. Yeah, you just, it, I, I think I stress in the book when you're watching bears and the bears are doing such and such and such and such, you don't really know what happened before. You don't really know what that bear's previous experience with humans is, if it's had any or if it's been a lot or if it's been correct or 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 whatever. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, no, it's sometimes they ignore you and sometimes they don't. And then sometimes you think that you think that they see you and uh, they're used to you sitting there and then they start blundering towards you or something like that. And they're totally amazed when, when you stand up or something. I was moose hunting several years ago in a, a lake where it's not too many people go. Some people go, but the bears there, it's sort of in the middle of the corridors between the Shelikoff Strait and uh, uh, Bristol Bay area. So the bear was probably moving through there and it was a really outsized big male walking down the lakeshore. And I was afraid he was going to come into our camp. And I, I just reacted. And when he got around the shore, when he was still like 100 feet away or something, I went out and stood on the shore the same way he was and said something, hey, bear, ho, bear, go away, bear or something. And he looked at me and he was totally, 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 totally surprised. He just about fell over backwards trying to get out of there. And that's why, you know, you just would have assumed he would have smelt the camp and the fire and everything else like that. But he was completely oblivious. He was just at least I think he was oblivious. He certainly acted surprised when I, when I yelled at him. So. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was just being a bear. He was just being a bear. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now during your, your decades of bear observations, um, you sometimes saw bears behave in ways that no one else had seen or predicted. I mean, you mentioned a time when you saw two bears playing, so to speak, uh, with the older bear laying on the ground while the sub adult was tugging at the skin around his neck. Right. Totally unexpected, or it was it was a totally. I've only seen that several times, and I don't. I just you know I I, I don't know whether it, what, what what I don't don't have a clue what's going on because I've also seen big males try to kill sub adults too. So and we've we've also found dead sub adults from time to time too, and they could have been killed by a female or something. And but it, I I I I don't know. It's just like every once in a while I think I sit in that same chapter. You you see what you assume is a, um, the mother's cub from a previous litter following her around with, right. with a spring cub with, with, with this year's cub. And, you, and I've, I've seen that several times and uh, I've seen that same female, mature female play with the sub adult, you know, which you assume is three or four year old bear and, or spring cub just sort of hang out around the outside being scared of the sub adult, but getting close to the sub adult, but the female is actually playing with them and the sub adults will follow that, follow that mother you know, and it following means you know see them both in the same day in the same place sometimes within you know a few feet of each other but seem to be in the same area area as, as their mom so that but you don't see that too often but this year last summer for the first time just to show you what an extraordinary behavior you can see we had a, a young male pretty good size you know five six hundred pounds tried to come in to fish with in, in the same area where there's a couple of females with cubs. And at one point, and I, fortunately, there was other people there that saw it with me. 
both females attack the male at the same time. And I've never, you never see two bears attack two on one. I just didn't, I've just never seen it. Maybe other people see it all the time. But both those females went for the male at the same time. And it was hard to tell when the, in the melee with, that went on, you know, exactly what was going on. It, every, it looked like everybody might have been biting each other, but they keyed on driving that male away from that, you know, that specific area where they wanted to be with their cubs. So <laughs> is that cooperation? I sort of doubt it or is it just sort of an incident that happened or who knows, but it, it took me that many years to see two on one like that. So. Yeah. And, and no idea whether it was provoked by the, the sows being concerned about their, their cubs or there was a, a rich food source there that they didn't want the, the male to get into. Yep. Yeah. Either way. And of course it could have been, you don't know who's related to who I wish that that's if I had to, if I knew if I had one wish in the bear world, it would be to, to know who, who was related to who and how they got along through their lives being identified. So, but I have without marking them and going through a whole big thing. That's, a, that's a whole different thing. That's something I'll never, never accomplish. We recognize some bears from year to year in the spot that we go to, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's as far as they say, scientifically, this is that and this is that is like, you know, I can't really prove anything. We're talking today about bears, coastal brown bears in Alaska with Derek Stoneroff, a wildlife biologist who has a new book coming out a little bit later this spring called Watch the Bear. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, has given away over two million nickels since they started their nickel back program on their checking accounts. Learn how you can earn a nickel on your signature-based transactions at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Derek, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you got to Alaska back in the 60s, I believe, right? 66 was your, your first summer there? Yeah, you've got a good memory. Well, I've got the book right here, too. <laughs> Over the decades, have you observed a change in bear behavior as the human footprint has expanded into their habitat? I think it cer certainly has. And, and if you want, in, in on the Katmai Coast, I think as, as bears got, have gotten more and more habituated, as more and more people have gone in there, the bears have gotten more, there's more and more habituated bears, and uh, bears seem to be more and more tolerant to people. When we first went down there, it was, which was, I think my first years that I ever went in, down the Katmai Coast in Hallow Bay, which is the famous coastal spot there for uh, viewing bears, the, the, a lot of bears wouldn't tolerate us at all. They would just move off. And now I'm sure that some of them do, but there seems to be a lot more bears in the meadows there that are tolerant of people. So I think I, I think it has changed. But I think one thing that you've got that's that's going on right now not just in, in the coastal bears in there, but I've seen more in the Kenai Peninsula, like where I live, the urban interface. We have so many new people in home and new houses. The bears sort of, in order to keep living here, are going to become more and more in contact with people. 
and eventually the bears are going to lose and they're going to be moved back. But as the urban interface grows, the incidence with people and having to habituate slightly in order to get food sources is going to increase. But as far as bear viewing, I, I think there's more and more habituated bears in on the on the coast there. They're not all that way because the ones that aren't habituated aren't going to come down and hang around with people. But there seems to be an inordinate amount of bears that, that do. And it's like in another part, in the Katmai Preserve, which is part of Katmai National Park, it's a, there's some creeks up there that we go to. And I used to go there in, say, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And we'd be the only people there, except some sport fishing lodges would come in occasionally. Now <laughs> it's a destination. It's a destination for bear viewers and for sport fishing. And the bears that are there in order to get to the salmon, which are the red salmon, which are coming from Bristol Bay, they literally have to fish <laughs> right in between sport fishermen and bear viewers. I mean, they have to, in order to get in there to get the food source. So one would say things have changed there a little bit because when we were there, we were the only people there on Miles Creek and on the lake and stuff. The bears didn't have to be around us, didn't have to hang out around us. They were they always seemed to be very tolerant. And a lot of the bears in this particular area, this is where a lot of McNeil River bears, which are very habituated, or most of them are, this is where they go to eat Bristol Bay red salmon. They go across the coast. It's only about 25 miles. Right. I put that, I put that in my book in there. Yeah. So, but it's a, that's a good question. I think the bears are in, in a lot of areas are becoming much, much more habituated, but they habituate very quickly. People just have to realize that. But, it, but is that a good thing? I mean, are we losing something in nature because humans want to be everywhere and you've got habituation? I mean, you know, here in Park City, Utah, we've got moose coming through the backyard because they know they're not going to be hunted. We've got, you know, deer coming through because they know there's bird feeders and they can, you know, grab some bird seed up to eat in the wintertime. We have to be losing something. Well, that's... I think I think we are losing something. I think the animals are adapting just as just as well as they can. We have we have moose around our house. We have to look both ways when we go out the door here. But they're also as the snow gets high in the high country, they have to move through uh, past my house here. I have canyons on both sides of my house, so I don't because I didn't want to have any neighbors on either side. And uh, the, as a result, the moose come right down my driveway and have to go by my porch to hit the lowlands down below. So it's sort of my fault. But yeah. um, I think, you know, I, I, I think the more wilderness and the more wild places we can preserve. And it's, as I said, my wife defends the park service at, 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 uh, at Brooks Camp saying they're protecting the bears. I think that we have to start, you know, giving these animals added protection. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, we were at, a while ago when I was working for Audubon, we were went to the uh, Kenai Wildlife Refuge, which is U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service above us. And we were just sort of scoping it out whether bear viewing would be possible to do in the refuge. There's no bear viewing on the Kenai, organized bear viewing that, that I know of. And uh, we we're trying to figure out a way how you would go about having people watch bears and not have the bears become habituated at all, because a lot of those Kenai bears approach the road system and a place they traditionally went in the winter and certain times of the year was now a place that's got a lot of subdivisions in it and stuff like that. So obviously you don't want to get a bear used to you on the creek, go sit next to it while it's fishing up towards the mountains and then have it get used to people there 
then go down across the highway and go into a subdivision. So we sort of figured out a way to do it, but it would have been at great distances and certain ways to approach the place where you were going to sit to watch to, so you wouldn't there wouldn't be any bears on the on the way. And it, it hasn't been done. The park service, the there's no there's there's still no bear viewing in the on the on the Kenai. But on the other hand, if you look at all the big rivers that we have here, the Kenai and the Kasilov, and here we've got the Bradley and the Fox and stuff right below my house here. There's practically no bears in any of those big estuaries anymore. There's a few at the head of the bay, but there's cattle up there, and cattle and bears don't seem to get along too well together. And uh, no, they don't. But the, but the Kenai River, I don't. I maybe there's a bear there every great once in a while, and the Kasilov. There's just people down there all the time, and commercial fishing, and so in a way, we just keep pushing the bears back farther and farther, farther back. But uh, we did a, a deal. We had a, a identified the, the the bears on the Kenai as a, a population of special concern. There's a the Kenai tends to have a very static population of bears, and it's very hard for bears to get on and in and off the Kenai Peninsula. Not too many of them do. They don't have a common the the gene pool for the Kenai. It's basically the same for the bears up in Anchorage. Some bears do make it back and forth, but not not very many. Basically, the Kenai is an isolated population, and we tried to stop the DLP. That's the Defense Elation Property Kills on the Kenai to see if we could minimize them through better garbage management. And it worked for a while until the grants ran out and everybody stopped doing it. But uh, it, 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 a lot of this stuff can be eliminated, alleviated. And uh, if, if we decide the bears are worthwhile to keep around up here, the Kenai, we, as a result of this study that everybody was very conscious of the bears for quite a while. And now we have, you can shoot brown bears over bait on the Kenai Peninsula. You can go out and put dog food out and, and do that. So that shows you the, that's the difference between the feds and the uh, state. The state has a, thinks there's too many bears and it's fine to shoot them that way. And you can't, fortunately the, the park service has been fighting to keep uh, that, that kind of hunting off of the refuges. And at the moment they're, they're successful. Yeah, yeah, keeps going back and forth depending on who's in Washington. Yeah, that's it. Unfortunately, but the, but it, we we can do it. You know, it's just like I some somebody says to me, "Well, what am I going to do if a, if a bear comes through my yard?" I said, "Well, get on your porch and watch it go through, and be happy it's chosen to come through your yard, but you don't want it to stop. You don't yeah. want to have food there. You don't want to have a reason for it to hang out around your house because then you're gonna your neighbor's going to shoot it. Is what happens here." But yeah. if you just if they just keep right on moving by, that's just fine, you know. Well, I'm curious, and, and we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation. Can can we apply what you've observed in the coastal brown bears of Alaska to the behavior of grizzly bears in the Rocky Mountains? I that I don't know. I would assume that they uh, have the same kind of social stru structure, and I, I would assume that they communicate the same way. But I, I think that I don't know about the density of bears there. I don't know about the food sources and I don't know about the humans, but uh, hopefully it would be a, a, a good start in that, in that right uh, direction. If you, I don't know if you remember uh, the, the most famous uh, book on uh, bear attacks is Steve Ferrero, Dr. Steve Ferrero at Calgary. Sure. He's a sure. wonderful person and probably knows more about bears than anybody else. 
And I wish he would, I wish he could answer that question, but he's got this, the same stuff that he wrote in his, in his, in his first book, bear attack books about the behavior of bears. And that, and that's, that's what uh, he thought. I think, I think there's, you know, great, great similarities, but I think it's a, there's environmental influences on the way a bear is going to behave. Yeah. I've, I've seen some, some situations, you know, coming down from Yellowstone into the, um, uh, John D. Rockefeller Memorial Parkway. Um, once there was uh, a, a, a bear, and I don't know if it was a sow or a boar, on a hillside over over the road, and you know, twenty yards away, thirty yards away, and of course you had a bear jam of people, and uh, the, the ranger there was trying to control the people, and the bear just did what bears do. It you know was totally um, not interested in, in the human beings watching it. What, what are the keys to being safe in bear country? I mean, at, at the, the the end of your book, you, you list a bunch of a bunch of suggestions on, on how people should behave around bear country. And and one thing I, I love that you put in there, and, and you know, you're quoting Dr. Herrero again, is pepper spray is not brains in a can. Yeah, I can't. That's that, definitely Steve. That's not me. That's for sure. Yeah, that, it, it, and it isn't. I, I think it's a it's a good thing to have with you. And uh, sometimes we have flares just in, if I, if I have a whole bunch of people or in the, the person I go out with is responsible for the, for his group, they're all his clients. I just sort of get to tag along. They take flares. He's never had to use one, but your insurance company uh, would sort of frown on you if you didn't have any kind of deterrent with you and something happened to somebody, which is oddly that's in the bear viewing business. That's a real, that's a real, that's a real consideration nowadays, your insurance company. I my my I'm a, a firm believer. I think the first thing that, that, that you start with is learn about bears. Learn about what you're going to be doing out there, and sort of rehearse the fact what you're going to do if you do meet a bear. I think those two things are are the sort of the key to the key to getting along with bears in a, basically a wilderness situation. But you cannot. I can't stress enough. What's the previous experience of the bears? Has it had bad experiences? Has it been into food? It's, you know, what was it doing 15 minutes before you got there? It might have been going through somebody's camp that wasn't there and uh, looking for hamburger. And, and they're, 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 they are incredibly, incredibly smart animals. And I, I've always had dogs. I've had hunting dogs. And I, my lab's asleep on the, on the right here at the moment. And he's a big field trial dog. And bears are put dogs to shame. <laughs> As far as intelligence and, and when you're watching them figure out how to do things and they're just, they're very, very, very intelligent anim animals. If I get back to the analogy of the bear in the Russian circus with ice yeah. skates on, ice hockey stick on its back legs. I can't even talk, teach my dog to walk on his back legs. And I think he would like, like to do that. So it's, uh, they're, they're very, very intelligent animals and they're going to pick up on, on, on your behavior. I, I really do think that they they will. And there's there's uh, smart dog, smart bears and and bears I'm sure aren't quite so smart. And, and I hate to say this, but we always used to say that Charles Manson of bears may be wandering around out there. Who's to? And then that's totally, totally, totally. You know what's what 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 is going to happen? I don't know. You know that's there's there's possibilities, but there's tremendous variation in these bears. They're not all peas in a pod. That's that's for sure. Have you ever heard of um, using an air horn to scare off a bear? I, I I have heard I have heard of that, and I, I knew a guy that they were sort of testing it out, and I I don't know. I imagine it would be pretty effective. 
to, to yeah. do it. I, 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 I really don't. Somebody, there was another person, they were thinking of some kind of laser lights. They were thinking of laser lights to drive them away. Well, I've never had to do anything much more than clap my hands. That's, uh, and I, I stress in there, when I first went to McNeil River, they were shooting bears with rubber bullets. And then right. they were using cracker shells. And then now they realize if you just go out and talk to them and clap your hands, they'll change their, uh, which way they're going. But it's one thing to move a, a sub-adults, which are the ones you're most likely to interact with. And it's a lot different to behave towards a mother with cubs <laughs> or a big male, and uh, particularly a big male during mating season. And they're just, it's not because I've had adverse interactions with them. They're just being a human, they just are different and, and intimidating. And why Why would anybody want to move a mother with cubs? Is it better just to let her, she's, she's not going to, she's not going to hang out with you and stay for a really long time. If she does, there's a variety of reasons for that. And you can sort of adapt to that. We, uh, we always, I always like the stories, oh, the mother bought the cubs over and she left them with us so she could go fish. Well, there's an area around you that doesn't have any big males because the big males tend to hang out a, a little bit further back. They seem to be a little bit more timid and they don't like to hang out with people. So you have an area around you that if a mother leaves the cubs or if, she, if the cubs are there, she doesn't have to, you have a area that being human has caused there not to be any big males around you. So you have a, a safety zone for for mothers or cubs right or, right or close by. So it's... Uh, the mothers, I never, I've never yet to see a mother bring her cubs over and leave them with me to, for me to take care of while she goes fishing. So, yeah. yeah. One thing you you mentioned in in the end of the book about bear safety and whatnot, which kind of surprised me. Hold your ground. I I think if all if all else if you can't back up and increase the distance, if you obviously that's not working, the best thing to do is just stand there, and hold and 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 stand your ground and, and you know. My my experience has been that's that, that's the that's tends to be the end of it, but you should increase your distance. Increase your distance. If if a bear's if you think a bear is displaying towards you, and behaving behaving in a way that you don't like, back up, and uh, give it as much room as you can, and and see if it doesn't stop. If increasing your distance doesn't stop, that's I mean that's tried and true, yeah. and uh, if worse comes to worse, stand your ground and and. Uh, Hopefully the bear that's going to be that's going to end it too. What about the the, the advice that you, you should drop to the ground and you know cover your neck and head as much as possible? Our my my thoughts on that is it, that's probably a really good not probably it's it's a good idea, but you should wait until the bear makes contact with you before you do that. That should be your last resort that you're going to do. That's when the bear is actually attacking you. Outside of that, a fact. I would try to scare the bear off right before it made contact with me. I would, I probably, if I, when the bear was just a, you know, a foot away or a couple of feet away and you were pretty sure it was going to bite you or that something was going to happen to you within the next couple of seconds, then you can start yelling and screaming or whatever it's going to come. But, but if the bear is going to, uh, if, you know, if you, if you are being attacked, certainly you want to lay on your stomach and cover up your vitals and everything else. And most attacks are, seem to be pretty short, but you know, they're, they're, I mean, there's tragedies out there and there's, they're, they're big animals. And that's, that's about all I can say, but you, the learning about them, I think is, I think that's the, the best key. And it's like, if you're hiking, if you're hiking in the park and you want to take a lunch break, 
and you say you're in, a, in the timber, which I, I'm not really, that I haven't been to Yellowstone for years, but say you're in the timber or in alders or somewhere where you can't see very well. Don't stop and eat your lunch where you can't see around you. I have seen people stop on bear creeks and back right up against the alders, right up against the bear trail. And, you know, the, the, the bear's not going to notice you till it's, you know, really, really, really close. And you're going to get, you're going to get a really good scare. And it's something that doesn't have to happen. If you're just a little tiny bit aware that you can move out and give yourself a little bit of space around you where the bear can see you before it's right up on top of you. And, and it has to react. We get into that critical distance in there. If you get a, if the bear comes up somewhere where it's got to attack or flee, then uh, that's a whole different thing. But if it has a chance to look you over before it's right on top of you, same with campsites. You should put a campsite in a place where you can see and not if a, if a bear comes around there. And you can scout the area a little bit and see if there's a bear trail. And if, if there's not a bear trail, that's that's a little bit of something in your in your favor. But it's better just to be somewhere where you can you can see. When we used to go pheasant hunting when we were kids, we always used to say, don't stop and have a candy bar where you can't get a clear shot, which means you have to be in a open area where you can see all the way around you in case the pheasant decides to flush or something like that. And um, I always think this it's the same thing. Don't, don't stop and eat your snack. Or if you're in a place where there's just bears just walking all over the place, stop in a place and where, where, where you can see around you. I think that's very important, but learning about bears, I think is, I think that's key. I think that's, I, I think that once you, if you learn, take the time to learn about them and learn about the bears in the area you're going to go to, that's probably the best about the best defense you can you can have. Yeah. yeah. And take a friend. <laughs> it's always nice to have two people there. I can tell you that I, I could be the world's bravest bear watcher. But I'll tell you, I feel a lot better if I have somebody standing next to me if a bear decides to misbehave. But I'm just really careful all the time, you know, so that's just that's just the way I am. Yeah. Well, Derek, thanks so much for joining us today. It's, it's a wonderful book, very enjoyable um, from the anecdotes that you share, but also from the, the wisdom that you share in terms of bear behavior. Again, this is Derek Stoneroff, a wildlife biologist who has been watching coastal brown bears in Alaska for 50 years. He has a new book coming out later this spring called Watch the Bear. Derek, thanks again. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Derek's book, Watch the Bear, is scheduled to arrive in May. Watch for it. Next week, are you wondering what's the latest in Big Bend National Park? Join us as Lynn Riddick sits down with Park Superintendent Bob Kremenacker to hear about construction and communications projects, staffing, wildlife, and wilderness expansion issues. She'll have all the latest. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. 
You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.